pantheons, a staple of fantasy for generations now. Thousands of gods have been invented and worshipped by millions of people that will never exist beyond the pages and screens they exist in. Wild, isn't it? But when you sit down to write, why does it always feel impossible to create anything that feels unique? How do you make a pantheon? Why do you make a pantheon? What do you make a pantheon? This and more on this episode of Why Are You Talking About This? Nerd. Welcome to Waytad Nerd. I am your divine intervention, William, and I will be that second set of footsteps in the sand through this episode, talking all about writing pantheons and religions. Thank you so much for listening, following, downloading, reviewing, and whatever else the fuck you do to enjoy the show. It means the world, even if you're listening because it's funny for all the wrong reasons. Those being to make fun of me, not because I'm actually funny. This week, in addition to the normal download motherfucker announcement, I do also have a couple other announcements. First, now is the time to start submitting messages for episode 20. Every 20 episodes, I give myself a quick little gimme episode and make you do all the legwork. It's the feedback episode where all the corrections you made that could wait, other details, ideas, and things you want to share with the audience gets read out. This is also when I'll update any episodes that seem outdated from the last 19. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is that you won't be hearing from me until just about the end of the month or beginning of next month. Yeah, I've just been getting motherfucked by trying to live a life, working, doing this show, also trying to find a romantic partner. If you have any phone numbers, call me. Um, <laughs> don't, don't do that. I'm not hard to find. Don't fucking call me. Um, so, anyways, I need a little bit more time to put uh, together episodes since I'm currently working on this script Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday before publishing. I know I'm publishing late, but look, anyways, let's just get on with the show. Alright, so this week, as I said, we're talking about pantheons and designing them. Now, this isn't really going to be an episode breaking down the complex and problematic world of gods and being cringy and religious, and also, this isn't really something I'm necessarily mad about. That's way tat this week. Instead, this episode is more about the basics you need to know to make a pantheon and everything that might be useful in the design process. And because of that, we're having a very bare-bones and simplified history section, and why it matters. 
We also have a very bare bones history section because honestly, you fucking try looking up the history of pantheons. But you know what? Let's just get right into the meat of it. With first, what is a pantheon? Put simply, it's all the gods and divine beings of a culture or religion collectively. Or, if you're a linguistics fetishist, pan meaning all and theos meaning gods. So, a pantheon from both angles means all gods. Now, unlike other times on the show, this doesn't really help, does it? I mean, we sit down to make a pantheon, you aren't thinking, well, dip dangly doogly, if only I knew what any of this horseshit meant. Instead, you're thinking about how many gods to include and what they represent. If you're doing that, then the types of real-world religion can actually help you with that. Now, most, if not all, world religions can be broken down into five types. First is monotheism. Under monotheism, there's only a single god. Now, similar to the real world, this may or may not be a belief that the entire universe is controlled by a single, capital G, Big Daddy God, or this culture might accept that other gods exist, but they're monogamous and only fuck with Melandria, the goddess of big mommy milkers, sexual breastfeeding, and being a man-baby being taken care of by a woman with the patience of a saint that deserves much better than you. Now, the second is polytheism, where the culture worships multiple gods. Phone, I swear to God. Gods. Which again, might not help much, but depending on how many you want to have, Anywhere between, let's say, two and 10,000 gods. Phones shut the fuck up. But keeping in mind that cultures with a fuck ton of gods also have very, very specific domains. Like, Gulo, the god of crusty socks, that might be that way because of jizz, but you're really hoping is just sweat. Now, third is atheistic religions. And I know what you're saying. William, you silly crack whore. Atheism isn't a religion. And my response is, have you seen militant atheists? And no, this describes a religion where there are no divinities, and any use of things like the divine, holiness, and similar ideas are either a metaphor or just entirely not there, and the faith is more about a series of practices. In real life, this would be things like Confucianism and some interpretations of Taoism, where much of the teachings have nothing to do with gods. This is particularly good for a culture they want to know as being particularly scholarly or a flanderized, poorly done copy of one of the very rich and interesting East Asia cultures that you couldn't be fucked to learn about. Fourth is animism, where the divine occurs in natural creatures and things, and that essentially all things have a spirit or divine presence. While usually these beings are less powerful than a god would be, sometimes these can become exceptionally powerful. And if it's a religion that gives concepts these divine spirits, the spirits of fear, courage, law, and other human-made concepts might be incredibly powerful, and on the level of gods, or places with extreme importance, might similarly be on the level of gods. And finally is totemism, a system where humans have a connection to the mystical world through plants, animals, or other spirits, and that this being serves as the spiritual representative for that people, person, or group. Now, this is usually what people will say the Native Americans had as a religion, despite the fact that there were actually all five in the various Native American cultures. I don't give a single fuck 
what Joe Biden or the IRS says. Now, this one is particularly useful if you want to make your audience familiar with the Sparks Notes version of your culture's thoughts on things by telling them which animal applies to what. Like, if they view themselves as the Chad Raven and depict their enemies as the Soy Jack Rook, clearly this culture gives more of a fuck about birds than you or your mother, and also loves a man with a thick beak and a shaggy neck. Okay, but now you might be asking yourself, what the hell the point even is? Well, yes, pantheons are fun, and we all like being creative and world-building. What's the actual point of this? And nice try, you fuck. You aren't going to infiltrate my podcast that easily. Most of us won't even bother to ask and would come up with some bullshit symbolism after the fact, never admitting to ourselves that 90% of what we write and make is because we thought it would look cool. But I'll forgive you. Even better, I'll humor you. So besides being really fun as a piece of world building, making your pantheon, assuming that the gods are real, or, or at least probably to maybe real, to having some effect but not being real, can help you with world building or telling the story you want to tell. First, creating gods can give you a good baseline for your magic system and a potential source of power for that system. If the world doesn't naturally have magic, like a system where magic is just another element of reality, then the gods can play a huge part. From Forgotten Realms Mistra, the goddess of magic, that is the reason why 10th level magic doesn't exist anymore, because someone fucked around and undid a god, to the winds of magic in Warhammer Fantasy being the leaky asshole that is the polar gates dribbling chaos energies into the clean undies that is the Warhammer world, and every spell being a fragment of Zinch from the time Korn pummeled him for being a bitch. One of the times, not the time, one of the times. And as you can see from these examples, both settings have a god of magic, but the impact is vastly different. Forgotten Realms, Mistra is benevolent, or at least not an asshole that is worried about reality existing and form the weave of magic to both let the setting stay fantasy and also stop it from imploding on itself. While a Warhammer, like all things Warhammer, that information leads to the realization that everyone is fucked because the guy who lets magic happen, the thing stopping chaos from voring the planet with its gaping furry urethra, is one of the four satans trying to do just that with his bird cloaca. Now, secondly, having a pantheon can either deepen or promote conflict or introduce new conflicts into your story. For example, sure, your audience might be invested with the idea that the hero needs to defeat the evil wizard because the love of their life is on the line, and this is a fantasy story written before feminism was mainstream, so she's fucking useless to do anything to help. But, you can deepen this investment by having a literal god come down and point your main character in the right direction and be like, Hey, that's fucking wild, right? Look, if you kill him, I'll give you some sick powers. Also, my brother's empowering him. Bye! Then, now your audience is even more invested because the stakes have been massively raised and also something fucking awesome just happened. And they're curious about the brother gods thing or they're Alabama curious about the brother gods thing. Now, having gods can also introduce additional conflict, like having a character with a strict moral code following a god that is very, very clearly real, being forced into a position where it seems like they have to abandon their code to succeed, therefore pissing off a god. Now, kind of related, 
You can also help to define the role of different classes of beings and why one type of badass better than humans in every way, except as being the self-insert OC, do not steal creatures, hasn't taken over the world yet. Can gods manifest themselves? Do they require mortals to do things for them? What is the range of their powers? All this makes it more clear what the limits of the world is. Like, if gods can't affect much but give people superpowers and talk to mortals, then it reinforces a lower-powered theme, meaning it makes more sense that stuff like the undead don't control the world because they don't just have an army of inexhaustible, perfectly loyal minions. But if gods can not only physically manifest but shape every aspect of their domain as they wish, then it also makes sense that the status quo is the status quo because they're the motherfuckers that made it. Fourth, you can have some very unique cultural expressions based on the gods a particular culture worships. And this is important for world building, but can come up in stories too. Like if the chief deity of your primary antagonist is the god of murder, warfare, punching babies in the face, blood, cannibalism, fatherhood, rifle, rulership, and being so in the closet that you homophobically, homoerotically wrestle with your homies naked in the mud, you get a pretty good idea about what their culture is all about. Being gay and insecure about it and deciding to make it everyone else's problem. Next, once you actually start writing, you get more opportunities for free Deus Ex Machinas or Diablo Ex Machinas. And what this means is that your audience is less likely to call bullshit because you have a ton of highly involved gods. It would make sense for them to step in when your main character, whose reasonable plot armor just ran dry, is about to die. Or, if things are going too good, and the bad gods have a real hate boner raging for your main characters, you can absolutely motherfuck them out of nowhere and then say, Well, God CEO of racism all year said fuck those guys, and your audience might well go, Oh, well, in that case, fuck all year, instead of realizing that you forgot to put conflict in your story and just made up something. And related to this, you also get a very convenient hand wave. Since gods are basically all-powerful, at least depending on your world, you get a free hand wave for really whatever wacky shit you want to do. Like, if you want a character to return from the dead, your audience is probably going to be a bit more willing to go with you on it if the god of death or god of life decides to help them. Or if the gods create something that would normally make no fucking sense, you get a bit of a free pass from your audience because gods tend to exist outside of the continuity of physics. And finally, you can explore or criticize religions in real life, assuming you do it right with a lesser chance of offending people. Now, obviously, be very careful about this and try to have a few layers of separation. Don't make a monotheistic religion worshipping Sky Daddy and massive gaudy churches with dudes and gold reading totally not Latin from a holy book only they understand and then say, now these guys are the most evil pieces of shit to ever exist because everyone knows exactly what you're doing. Instead, don't only bring an actual point besides God bad, because we're not in fucking junior high or cringe atheists. Also have a few layers of unique shit. Like, do the thing that a lot of fantasy worlds do with their Catholic church insert, and have it be a goddess of obedience or something. And change up in what way they're shitty. Instead of being hypocritical about God loves you and forgives you, but also get fucked, nerd and give me more money, poor person, and don't mind the solid gold cross around my neck, make them hypocritical about, like, 
yes, we're very peaceful people, except for the death squads we sent out to oppress the poor, and, well, if you starve to death, you go to heaven. So if you think about it like that, I'm actually helping you out by stealing this food from you. But it's important to understand the core values of the religion and why you think its modern form or a modern sect is failing to live up to it. Don't just randomly slap some shit onto it because you want to be a dick to some religious people for no reason. Again, that's the atheist's job. Your job is to write. But with that, let's get over to the extremely short history section this week. So, this week we're starting off with the first fictional pantheon I can find. In 1928, a short story was published in Weird Tales, The Call of Cthulhu. Now, besides being written by the middle manager of racism, H.P. Lovecraft, the absolute travesty of a man, this story created the Cthulhu mythos and, by and large, the entire cosmic horror genre. This mythos's pantheon largely developed between 1928 and somewhere into the late 60s. And this pantheon, despite inspiring a lot of cosmic horror and eldritch horror, had a little bit of a lesser impact on fantasy. While later works like D&D, Warhammer Fantasy, Conan, and similar stories uh, would be heavily influenced by it, fantasy at the time at least was still in its little magical realism phase, where they mostly did like fairy tales, or retellings of classic stories, or weird like otherworld shit. But that all changed with J.R.R. Hydrogramma Tolkien. As we've talked about before, in 1954, he released The Lord of the Rings. And while it was still technically set on Earth, despite really in no way being possible, fucking come at me. This series, and the Silmarillion, his fucking world-building notes, introduced creating your own gods. And this altered the course of the fantasy genre and fiction overall forever. What follows is a flurry of new fantasy writing through the 50s and 60s, like Jack Vance, Paul Anderson, and Michael Moorcock. And while not every single fantasy creator within this time period was inspired directly by Tolkien, his success made their works all the more popular, and a lot of them included either unique gods or unique tellings of deities. And with this golden age of fantasy in the 1950s and 60s, combined with the pulp fiction and comic books filling their pages with god after god, and the continued success of the eldritch horror genre, all of this combined to create arguably one of the most influential properties of all time. Dungeons and Dragons. And while the ideas surrounding modern fantasy had been floating around and just been waiting for someone to pull them all together, it was D&D that initially did it. And with God specifically, the inspiration provided by the game created entire generations of gamers and writers inventing their own worlds and gods. And even in the first edition, there were gods both borrowed from mythology and fiction of the time, but also some unique gods. Also, funnily enough, at the beginning of the game, gods were kept either vague or absent entirely, with clerics being more about their good-to-evil alignment and faith than an actual god, and Gary Gygax came up with Saint Cuthbert and Faltus as a joke, later coming up with more, borrowing heavily from mythology, character tropes, and even characters from the table. And if you want my personal opinion on it, it's because uh, 
Gary and one of the other guys. I don't remember his name right now, but they were both very heavily Christian. So I think the idea of, like, making characters that worship gods was a little weird to them. But anyways, I could keep going. This is literally all I have for the history. Like, this is more to show you that this is an old piece of world building. Very few fantasy and sci-fi creators have let it hold them back, though. Now, for the most part, they've just written the story they intended to tell and then let the gods be the gods. So, hey, you can do the same. And with that, we're actually just going to go straight to applications. Okay, so for the advice section this week, I'm going to tell you how to make your own gods. But before I do, following up on what I just said in the last section, before I mind-wipe you with that stinger, don't let making a pantheon hold you back from writing your story or doing other parts of world-building. This can be a very complicated process, and one that, by and large, won't really grab everyone who reads your stuff in the way you want. Some people will literally never be interested in reading about gods because they take the god-isn't-real atheism take into their fun fantasy worlds like a fucking freak. But anyways, first let's take inspiration from real-world mythos. Because most polytheistic cultures and a lot of monotheistic cultures with other divine beings that are basically just gods but less powerful have 11 common types of gods. And it's a good idea to draw from these because it'll make your pantheon seem a lot more fleshed out and will also give you some direction. And this time, as we go through, I'll give you an example pantheon to use for your own shit. Free of charge, absolutely take what you want. So the first is the Triple Goddess, with real-life examples like the Fates and Hecate of Greek mythology or the Norns of Norse mythology. A triple goddess is the tendency for a trio of goddesses to be used to represent a cycle, a process, or a concept that can be divided neatly into three parts, like time or the human lifespan. So when you make a triple goddess, make sure to create one that could be easily divided into three separate but related domains. So for our example pantheon, let's go with the triple goddess representing morning, afternoon, and night. And let's call her Okana. Also, keep in mind that this doesn't have to be a goddess. You could make a triple god or a triple entity, enbeity, enbeity's nuts. Really, whatever you want there. Also note that most triple goddesses are super duper magical or esoteric or just the weirdest shit. Which, you know, makes them my exact kind of woman comes in threes and might give my soul to Satan. Okay, so second is the Psychopomps. A Psychopomp is a being that sorts, guides, judges, or corrals the dead. Now, some real-world examples include Charon, Anubis, Osiris, and even some biblical things like Azrael, or in some canons, Michael, are Psychopomps. And these beings are important not just because one of a mortal's favorite things to do by frequency, besides having anxiety and fucking, is dying. People do be dying, and someone needs to collect these fucking idiots and show them which door to go through to either get an attorney of hot iron shoved in the pussy, 
like that one hentai that all my friends watch together for some sick reason. That's gross for multiple reasons. Or an eternity of getting tossed like a salad. And for our little pantheon, let's combine all of these things with Neros, the god of dying and the gatekeeper of the afterlife. Third are primordials, a god that is older than reality itself, or are so incredibly difficult to comprehend that it becomes impossible to describe or worship them in any meaningful way. Now, this could include things like Chaos or Tartarus from Greek mythology, but it actually also includes the Abrahamic god, or Ymir, whose corpse became all the nine worlds in Norse mythology. Primordials should honestly probably receive the least attention, as by their nature, they're hard to do anything with, at, at least in fiction. Even in something like the Cthulhu mythos, the main primordial in the form of Azathoth, whose dreams are all of reality, receives basically the least amount of attention, given that, if it ever wakes up, reality ends entirely. Primordials can also represent vast concepts like time, reality, and existence, like the goddess Gaia or Atum from Egyptian mythology. So let's say our primordial is Tor, the deity of reality and existence that the rest of the pantheon lives on. Fourth are Celestials, and these ones represent things like stars, astral bodies, planets, the sun and moon, and a ton of other things that we can see from our little rock hurling through space with only the thinnest forces of physics stopping us from being eaten into the vast hungry void but can't actually interact with. Examples would include gods like Apollo, Horus, and Freya. Of course, there's a bit of an issue with celestial gods in real-world myth, being that they tend to have a lot of overlap, and their celestial stuff is usually tied up in that. Like Apollo, representing the sun, but also represents music, medicine, archery, the concept of good, speed, competition, prophecy, being a femboy, fate, and healing. So if you're going with, like, strict, defined lines... Maybe don't lean on real-world ones. But, if you're okay with going with a mind-map approach to domains, go right ahead. But for our purposes, in honor of Apollo being the first goodest them-ish boy, let's add to the pantheon Sola, femboy god of the sun, light, beauty, fire, and the stars. And, maybe this is a little bit of horny posting. Don't judge me. You fuckers do it too. Fifth are culture heroes, who are gods that represent cultural values with a particular emphasis on good or rewarded deeds, or are heroic figures that have ascended. In Greek myth, a common example is Heracles, yes, that's the Greek version, who became the god of strength and masculinity. But also common are many Native American cultures having culture hero spirit animals that become gods after their story ends which is interesting. And this one might sound difficult at first, but after we finish with this section, you're honestly probably going to prefer making these ones instead of other gods, because it's a lot easier conceptually. Also, you can literally just make a god of whatever and then be like, yeah, that guy used to be a normal dude and they did some cool shit. Go be like him. And this will also demonstrate stuff the culture finds super valuable and traits they love, so make sure to keep that in mind. Speaking of which... Let's add our culture hero god, Longthung, god of unity and mouthfucking, because I am 13 years old at heart and naming a god of cunnilingus a long tongue is funny to me. And he teaches people the lessons that we are all a lot more similar than we think and can usually work together for the common good, 
And also, consume your partner's genitals with all your heart and soul, because they might be a god that makes you immortal. That or the lack of oxygen is getting to your head and you need to come up for air. Sixth are death gods. And these gods don't just represent death, no. They also represent loss and destruction in all its forms. And maybe more accurately, they should be called entropy gods. Because these gods are all the things that happen that fucks things up and kills people. Like Ares, Set, Sekhmet, or Zalakul. And in most mythologies, these fuckers are either evil or almost impossible to control, or if they are good, are given something else to offset their bad side. Usually opposing element, like Sekhmet, being the goddess of disease, but also the goddess of medicine. Death gods in your pantheon can represent a wide range of concepts, and this is where you need to be especially careful, because you can't just say, this is the guy that causes all the bad stuff, and then make them the only person of color, queer, or notably disabled member of the pantheon. This creates some, hopefully, very obvious shitty connotations. But for our pantheon, let's add Chaot, the goddess of discord, chaos, disasters, incompetence, and God's drunkest drivers. The seventh are cyclical and liminal gods. And these beings are deities of boundaries, cycles, change, alteration, and evolution. Now, basically every culture has a ton of these because the world exists on a cycle. And while they share similarities with the triple goddess, these deities are different because they tend to either die in return per their cycle, are extremely tied to their cycle, or are just fucking weirdos even by the standards of the triple goddess. And the reason why these two things are put together is because they both have a lot to do with transitions, and these gods almost universally deal with them. However you design this god will very heavily inform your readers what the culture who worships this deity thinks cycles work. Do the ages of the cycles continue? Well, this hints that the god is a representative, but not in control, making the culture out as believing hardcore in inevitability. Do they ordain when seasons start and can throw a temper tantrum like everyone portrays Demeter is doing when her fucking daughter slash mother slash sister slash elder tor dami mommy Persephone got kidnapped? Then this hints that the culture sees cycles as both controllable and changeable. And our liminal god will be Yuli, the goddess of seasons and weather that goes from child to pregnant crone each season and births from her crone corpse at the beginning of the next one, which is metal as fuck. Then there are the personifications. These deities are concepts and phenomena given physical form. Things like Phobos, Hypnos, and Nike are all examples of this. But also examples would be like a god of storms that is literally a man made of clouds, or the goddess of nature that takes the form of a forest. Personification also has the widest range of styles and looks and can really take on any form you want, which can make them extra hard to make. The only requirement is that their domains have to be kind of difficult to exactly define, but it's more of a feel or it's just very, very specific. Like again, Nike being the goddess of victory, while Erebus is the god of darkness and non-existence. How do you represent something that doesn't exist? Good question, but it has the right feel to it. So, let's add to our pantheon Gnosis, the god of thoughts and knowledge. Ninth are rustic gods. Now, at first, you might be thinking that this is going to be the soft, gentle deities that give you cool shit and love you and all that fuck. 
but you'd be forgetting that humanity for a long time didn't live in a world where nature was tamed and docile and the biggest threat to existence was our own hubris. Most cultures developed in a time when nature was your mother, yes, but she was also trying to kill you. She was harvest, but she was also starvation. Simplicity, but savagery. Fucking and getting fucked. Rustic gods, in the same way, are gods of nature and rural existence, but are also eldritch abominations or monsters in their own right. Like how Pan is the god of beasts, but is also an ultra-rapist and the god of savagery. Meanwhile, Dionysus is the god of wine and revelry, but is also the god of madness, addiction, and civilization, killing itself by fucking itself in the face. These are gods that would and could exist without humanity, and in some cases seek to undo them. In honor of the fucking horror of that, let's add Rhea to the pantheon, the goddess of nature and nature's ultimate fairness. Or in other words, nature doesn't care about the color of your skin when she's eating you from the feet up in the form of a wolf, or when you're collecting a bountiful harvest. I mean, either way, nature provides. Tenth are civilized gods, and these are gods that we like, being in contradiction to the previous ones. While still not necessarily soft, these gods represent the world that humans have built, civilization, and the parts of nature that help us and that we utilize. Most commonly are gods like Zeus, who besides being the god of lightning and storms, was also the god of rulership, fatherhood, being a good host, and the patron of all Greeks. He also cheated on his wife a lot, which says something about the ancient Greeks. Or Athena, the goddess of warfare, strategy, and wisdom. Now, in comparison to our last century, these guys are all about safeguarding and loving humanity in one way or the other, and usually protect civilization in some way. So, in honor of that, we'll add Hemestris god of cities, industry, and war to the pantheon. And finally, we have tutelary gods. I'm never going to pronounce that right. Don't even fucking correct me. And these gods are patrons of places, people, and things who act as highly involved guardians of those specific things. Most notable for their structural purpose of not actually being gods would be the majority of angels according to Christian tradition with an angel in each part of the world acting as a guardian over that general area or ensuring the faith remains high for the people living there. Oftentimes, these are also the hands of faith or personal guardians of a particular person. Most famous would be Athena's relationship with Athens, but including this list would be Agni in Hinduism that guards the southeast or Artemis, who protects virginal women and children and also protects women during childbirth. And for us, we'll add the god Grace, guardian of kings and rightful rulers and leaders. Okay, so now that we have all that, let's look at some tips on how to write your pantheon. The first thing we're looking at, because my process is a fucking mess I barely understand, is written by Jill Williamson. Eight tips for creating a pantheon for your novel. And her first tip is the kiss method. Keep it simple, shit heel. Write the gods as though they were characters and not world-shaking powers that may or may not have created this entire fucked-up world you're on. This will help you to make actually believable concepts rather than weird and esoteric and 
entirely unengaging archetypes that seem like he made them just to fit the fantasy quota of X number of gods. And for this example, let's look at Longthong. Who is this man? How did his pussy-eating skills get so good? Which goddess was it, and what is their relationship? In answering these, we get a better idea of who this is and why the inclusion is so important. For example, let's say that when he was immortal, he believed all humans should work together for a common goal because they were getting their collective backs blown out by the elves and then waffle stomped by the orcs. And in binding them together through diplomacy, pointing them towards a common issue and solving their disagreements with a peaceful and rational approach, he gained the admiration of Okana, who came down and said, Want some fuck? And then when Longthung did well, she took him back to the gods and told them he's one of them now and they can suck it if they disagree. See, this tells us a ton about how he and Okana operate as gods without needing to write a massive lore doc. Instead, with one very short story, we know how they get down. Hard and moist. Secondly, write an actual origin story or creation myth. This grounds your gods and also makes them feel more realistic and baked into the world. And this doesn't even have to be a true story, it can be what the people who believe in them want to believe happened to start the world or their pantheon. And this will also, again, guide the culture. So for our little pantheon, let's have the origin be that Tor, seeing the other primal gods having their fun making races, felt left out and lonely. Our poor eldritch boy, however, didn't really know how to do that without fucking himself up, so he decided, fuck it, I need people in the world that look like me, and created humans by removing his own heart and giving every drop of blood the name of human, and the blood that clung to his body became the gods. This explains not only where the gods came from, but also tells us a lot about Tor, and the culture that worships him believing themselves to be somewhat divine either from the sense of their literal blood from the god of reality and existence itself, or that they're so fucking fantastic a god committed to hand a chest to Poco just to make them a reality, and the only reason they aren't gods is because they're on Earth with you fucking losers. Third, know the culture you're making. Gods in the real world are meant to answer questions about reality and calm our little monkey brains from thinking there's no point in life and just giving up. So that we can have a society and shit. So if you understand the culture, you can create how they act towards the gods, and from that you can understand how they worship them and how that worship reflects back and influences the culture. And you can continue that no homo jerking each other off for as long as you want. It's still homoerotic though. As long as you can use the gods to answer the questions the culture would have about reality and use them to make the culture seem deeper and more complex than just, this is my ideal society, eat my cock. In this case, let's ask what Okana is meant to answer. Namely, she answers the question of why does the sun and moon do that thing where they trade places and who made it so fucking dark in here? And you can answer that by saying that Okana is a bit of a weirdo and a bad bitch that decided... One face? Cringe. How about three? And the rest of gods were like, fucking cool it. One face at a time, please. That's really gross and weird. And they worked out that she can change her face whenever she moves the sun and moon and makes it a different time of day. And eclipses are her trying to pull a fast one of the gods and have all three faces at once. And again, this characterizes her more and also tells us that to this culture, the length of days is dependent on the emotions of a single deity 
implying that they live in a place that varies wildly in light and dark hours. And this could either be from magic or a natural phenomenon, like living in a temperate climate. Trust me, sometimes it's fucking wild living in the Pacific Northwest, how quickly the sun sets in the winter compared to other winter days. It's wild. Next, choose a hard number of gods. Believe me, this helps immensely when creating a pantheon. Take the word of someone who has, no joke, sat down with the full intention of making 542 gods before. For starters, make like 5 or 6 or fuck, follow along and make 11. But for fuck's sake, don't be like, oh, I'll just go until it feels right. Because you'll never stop because it'll never feel right because you're a writer. Nothing ever feels good. Anyways, here's the deal. You can always come back and make more. Just make sure that for the actual world building segment, make a number of them you can comfortably use, and then later when people start asking questions, you're working on a sequel, or you realize there's some glaring pantheon gaps, you can make more from there. Primarily just to shut people up. Fifth, name them. The gods should have names unless you're going monotheistic or just call them gods. I don't suggest that, though, because holy shit, you'll probably get some real-world monotheists up your ass with a metal spoon, and not in the fun way. They're Christian. But also, make sure that you give them consistent names that sound like they work in the same culture, or using the same naming convention. Like, if you use titles instead of names, don't have a pantheon list like The Destroyer, The Red Rain, The Lover's Tears, and Daniel. One of those things don't belong. So, change it. It's the Lover's Tears, by the way. Daniel's a scary fucking name. <laughs> Sorry. I, <laughs> I have relatives named Daniel, and they're, they're cool guys, but they're not scary. <laughs> uh, Alright. Sixth, understand how they interact with their worshippers, heathen motherfuckers, and each other. And in a way, this is almost exactly the first point, but is focused on the relationships rather than their own characterization. And this will, again, tell you a lot about the culture, but also about the relationship between elements in your world. Is life and death in love? How about the god of cities and the god of nature? Or does the god of the sky hate the god of the sea, the moist bastard? And if it helps you, draw out a little relationship web or an emotion map. But remember, while writing the gods like characters is good, they also represent ideas to their home culture. Meaning, how they feel about each other affects how those ideas are seen. So, for example, how does Kaok feel about her worshippers? Well, let's make her feel like a real fucking bastard, because she doesn't hate her followers, she's just constantly disappointed. Whenever they cause mayhem, she gets excited for a moment and then promptly forgets. In fact, she'll often forget that they even exist and might accidentally kill two dozen worshippers because of the thought it would be fun if that building collapsed, and who gives a fuck about the people inside or the fact that they prayed to her to not let that happen. And how about the other gods? Oh, well, she's an absolute scumbag. No one likes her, and she takes every opportunity to ruin anything that they're working on. And she does it happily. She likes that no one likes her. And she knows she's a shitbag, and she's self-actualized off of it. And clearly, this says a lot about her and the Pantheon, but again, also the culture. Because of 
what all the other gods represent, it becomes clear that this culture views discord and chaos as opposed to all other values that the gods could possibly represent, including Rhea, who's also a rat bastard. Next, consider what other supernatural beings exist, if any. And if they do, are they creations of the gods? If not, then what are they? This will help you to figure out how much of jealous bitches your gods are. Kidding. What it actually shows you is what their competition is. Like, if there are things they didn't make that didn't develop naturally, whoever made those is probably a pretty big competitor. Or again, tells you something about the world. This can also demonstrate their power level, since if the gods you made created everything, obviously they're pretty fucking powerful. Okay, and finally, you should design symbolism, totems, spirit animals, and whatever for your gods. This not only makes them seem more unique, but can specify their portfolio. Like, for example, if Rhea and Yuli seem a bit too similar for you, we can make the spirit animal of Rhea a wolf and Yuli's spirit animal a cow. And no, neither one is in the rude way. For millennia, wolves have been seen as a symbol of fear and fearsomeness, but also for their pack loyalty, which makes a goddess as both nature being giving and nature taking violently away from you make sense. And for Yuli, the cow isn't an insult either. Instead, cows are usually seen as symbols of nature, but a more pacified and friendly kind of nature that gives you a lot of insight into who Yuli is as a person. Alright, and now we're going to look at another methodology, created by Kevin Victor Ray, and described in his article, Building a Pantheon, How to Choose Your Gods. Also, as a side note, when I read his article, um, all of the... Uh, all the words in the title were, like, in the correct cases. For whatever reason, when I copied the title of the article to put it in my notes, it only pastes them as capital letters. I don't understand, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but his two-step process requires some already pretty well-established world-building, but can actually help you to nail down stuff like the look of the gods and specific things about their domains. So the first step is to create some base assumptions. And no, not like dickheaded ones where you make judgments about people's culture. What do these gods influence and what are you influenced by when you're making them? Are they universal or cultural? What's the relationship between good and evil in your world? Also, what is the theme of your world? By using these, you can more easily shape your creativity and inform what you need to talk about. You know, some other ones would be like, What's the nature of the gods, and can gods be shared between cultures, or can different cultures' gods interact? Because all of those questions will drastically change how you make not only these gods, but the entire magic system of your world, and also the entire system of divinity. Alright, and step two is kind of deceptive, because it's actually just three steps, but condensed into one. But here you're creating the societal reflection of your gods. And no, this isn't editing your profile picture on Reddit to have a Joker smile and signing up on r slash incel or wherever they hide on Reddit. But addressing these things will help you to meaningfully integrate the gods into society. So, first, what does the culture value? And list these out. List them in their entirety. Because by listing these out, you're basically creating a list of both domains and personalities, as well as systems of worship. 
So let's say that this little culture we're building really values practical knowledge and lived experience over book knowledge. So basically the opposite of what I have. Which means that Gnosis isn't some gangly fucking nerd or a fat fuck. He's shredded. Because everything he has knowledge about is something he's done and has experience with. He is jack of all trades, master of all, because fuck you. Which, you know, he'd also be very good at that. But since Gnosis knows everything as a god of knowledge and his culture prizes learning hands-on, this man fucking invented steroids and CrossFit, also did every kind of physical labor you possibly could, and is a championship Olympic swimmer. And for another example, let's say that they also prize archery as an art form, a sport, and also a tool of war, and associate it very heavily with the sky. Then it would make sense for Sola to be a champ with the bow. Alright, so second, use these values to create the bones of the gods by combining the most important values with a secondary value that are similarly important to the culture and then put that in a blender with some good old-fashioned cultural archetypes they really like, like the warrior, sage, mother, farmer, massive fucking slut, you know, whatever you want. This is then used to create the bones of the gods, being all the relevant details that make someone look at your list of gods and go, ah, I know who that is, without having to look at the lore packet you printed out, the first session in your D&D game that is so thick with 10 Cs that's actively tipping the table over. So for Gnosis, despite being the Lord of Gains, is a calm and chess mastery sage archetype. And so he's basically an anime character. And Sola, given what he represents and also is a femboy and also good with a bow, can easily fit the master archer archetype. But let's also assign a secondary value of being emotionally available because fuck toxic masculinity. So now Sola is also an anime character, but specifically the femboy sniper makes the main character question their sexuality archetype. Okay, and the last step is to look at the culture's material conditions. What do people do to survive? How do they dress? What are common occupations you can model a god's clothing and tools off of? This finishes off how the gods either look or what specific form their archetype and domain take. Like you have two nature gods, have one dressed as an herbalist and the other dressed like a feral caveman that's been discovered deep in the jungles of Coos Bay, Oregon, shows a distinct difference in personality and approach. Using Gnosis and Solo's examples, we can have both of them wear robes, because clearly there's a lot of ancient Greek inspiration, and the look is kind of synonymous with what they represent. But we give Gnosis a Plato robe, a robe that specifically hides the fact that this man is broader than a fucking barn with an 18-pack. And for Sola, we go to the totally not gay, just expressing themselves, censorship robe used by Renaissance artists to cover the willy butthole. And no, this is not just because I'm horny. It's because this look is associated with things like cherubs, Apollo, and artistic portrayals of beauty. I'm cultured. Which all works to distinguish Sola in the Pantheon and make him much more easily recognizable. Which, if I did the math right, hopefully I'm not going to double check, leaves us with three gods. So, what do you think? What do they look like? How do they act? Try it out for yourself and let me know how it goes. But now let's get to why this matters before we end the show. 
So before I begin to make the point that I think a lot of you will make, I do want to say that in general, having a pantheon for your world is not some world-shaking thing that'll give those damn liberals on Twitter mad at you and posting L ratio under your post for the next five years. In fact, the only reason to have a pantheon that's fleshed out in the first place is world building. Either the unseen parts your audience will never see in set dressing or in very important character-centric ways that puts the gods at the forefront. Which is why when you do decide to create a pantheon, it should be thought through and actually fully fleshed out instead of a slapped-together mess. Where this matters a lot more is how your pantheon represents the world. For example, looking at our pantheon, what kind of representation does it have for women? Okana is a fucking crazy weirdo, Kaot and Rhea are fucking scumbags and are terrifying, and Yuli is the only one that is consistently okay, but oh my god are they really weird and gross how they work. So if you made this pantheon and it wasn't in order to make a point about this exact thing, people very well might see them and be like, hey, why are all the women in this pantheon either evil or crazy? Because gods in fiction are at this weird point where they represent both the in-fiction nature of the world and also the home culture's view of it. So in a pantheon where women are evil or weird, you might unintentionally be saying that the entire culture views women that way, or that women in this world are all that way. Which can then say some pretty fucked up shit about you. And this is even worse than the case of things people are already on the lookout for, for dog whistles, like ethnicity. So when making your pantheon, it matters to be cautious about how you're building it. And this isn't me saying they have to be super inclusive. Rather, just be aware of the method you're applying. Especially when dealing with deities that exist in multiple cultures. Make sure whatever differences exist says more about the deity than it does about the culture or you. And again, it's perfectly fine to make an evil god from any of the groups you want, but keep in mind to not make that the only place of diversity. Alright, and with that, let's go over the soapbox. Alright, so after all my research and frenzied studying on gods, what has changed? Well, I now have a couple much, much better ways to make gods. My process before was just to make up some shit and then use an online generator and then fully expect myself to crumble to pieces the second anyone asked me a question about it. Or to go so broad and fill the world with more gods than what most animists believe. And will I stop doing it the old way and begin doing it the new way? Sure fucking hope so. Because the old way kinda sucks. Sure, it's useful in creating a game and needs something to fit within some mechanics or form faction abilities and stuff, but it really, really sucks from a storytelling perspective. But at the same time, this new method requires two things, effort and a fleshed out world. Both of which I'm kind of spotty on when I'm world building. Sure, I can put my nose to the grindstone and work, but holy shit is attempting to take the easy way out just splatter gods against the wall like I'm spitting out my gum to suck dick. And unlike all my advice, gods are usually one, if not the first things I make when I make a world or culture. Which is to say, do what I say and not what I do. Let's go home. Oh. 
There you have episode 10. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else you, it is you can do on your platform of choice. I'm, I might keep that in. Send me an email at waytatpods at gmail.com with questions, corrections, opinions, compliments, insults. I'm actually fan art of these gods that aren't horny, fan art that is horny, and anything else you want to tell me. Also, follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, waytat where I talk about things happening in the U.S. They're usually soul-crushing and almost always things I'm actually angry about. All right, and with that, have a good night, have fun, keep writing, and remember, tip solo. Hard. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd, and I've been your host, William. Good night. <laughs>